Well, perhaps you have seen it. It's a popular series on Netflix uh, for four seasons uh, now, earning very high accolades. And as I understand it, there are two more seasons to go. It's simply called The Crown, and it is the story of Queen Elizabeth II. The first season, the first season begins with her marriage to Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, in 1947, and it carries through a little bit past her coronation in 1953. The plan, as I understand it, is to take her story um, through the early 21st century, almost to the present day. Such an ambitious undertaking requires three different women to play the role of Queen Elizabeth to to account for, well, you know, aging. Uh, Tana and I watched the first season, but, well, actually, we tuned out when it became a bit too edgy for us. But um, in, in true life... Elizabeth II was crowned Queen of England in Westminster um, Abbey on June 2nd, 1953, 1953, before many of you were born, years and years and years before I was born. The actual coronation in 53 was a significant event broadcast around the world by the British Broadcasting Company uh, on a relatively new form of media called the television. In fact, it is said the coronation of Elizabeth put TV on the map. Millions of people uh, around the world uh, were for the first time able to watch this celebrated coronation ceremony. It is a ceremony which has remained relatively unchanged for almost a thousand years. History tells us the first coronation at Westminster Abbey was in 1066 when William the Conqueror was crowned king after his victory at the Battle of Hastings. There is much pomp and circumstance, splendor and majesty, custom and tradition in the ceremony. The ceremony itself includes, with little variation, the following four events. First is the introduction which includes the entry of the sovereign to much fanfare into the abbey, the formal recognition of her, his or her right um, to rule, the oath, and the presentation of the Bible. Second, the sovereign is anointed with holy oil and seated on the coronation chair pictured here. If you look closely, you'll notice there is a stone under the seat of the chair. It is the greatly venerated stone of Schoon, captured from the Scots by King Edward I in 1296. On that stone, Scottish kings were seated when they were crowned um, for centuries before. Incidentally, you might be interested to know, the stone was returned to Scotland just a few years ago, which made William Wallace, I'm sure, very happy. Third, the sovereign is invested with royal robes and insignia to include being crowned with St. Edward's crown, royal regalia uh, called the crown jewels kept in the Tower of London are primarily taken out and used for this particular event. Fourth, the final ceremony, uh, the, the final ceremony consists of the enthronement of the sovereign on a throne placed on a raised platform, uh, bringing him or her into full view of the assembled company, and there he or she receives the homage of the Lord's spiritual, the Lord's spiritual, that is the bishops and the archbishops, he or she being the head of the church, the Lord's temporal, dukes, earls, and barons, and then the congregation representing the people of the realm. 
highly significant, much fanfare, really a big deal. Almost as important as the ceremony in 1953 was the presentation of the queen. You understand that at the age of 27, she needed to look, well, queenly. She rode to the abbey from Buckingham Palace in the gold state coach built for King George III in 1762. Now that is a ride for a sovereign, don't you think? On the way to the ceremony, Elizabeth chose to wear George IV's uh, state diadem, a crown constructed in 1830 consisting of a mere 1,333 diamonds and 169 pearls. If you look closely, you can see the pearls around the base, which makes for quite the headband. During the ceremony, however, she chose uh, two other crowns, the imperial state crown made in 1838 for Queen Victoria, designed to be lightweight as it was made of uh, a pl- uh, platinum and, only, uh, had, and, and, and had uh, only 2,700 diamonds and hundreds of other jewels. Incidentally, this crown also holds the second, at that time, the second largest diamond in the world, the lesser star of Africa, a mere 317-carat diamond. The third crown she wore that day was St. Edward's crown made in 1661, much heavier than the lightweight imperial crown since it was made of pure gold. These crowns are literally priceless. Your MasterCards will not buy them. There were also a variety of scepters and swords used in the ceremony, the most striking being the scepter with the cross is what it's called, which symbolizes sovereign power and justice. It is three feet long, made of gold, and contains the star of Africa, a 530-carat diamond, at that time the largest cut diamond in the world. The queen's dress that day was made from white satin with thousands of tiny seed pearls set in silver saucers covering the dress. You can find all of this on uh, Google. Finally, to complete the uh, majestic ensemble, she wore a robe made from 20 yards of velvet finished with silk, which took 10 weeks to sew. I would say that this was a coronation fit for a queen or a king. It is no wonder at that time it was the largest television audience ever. Kings and queens are meant to be honored, right? Well, so much for your English history lesson for today. Let's go back 2,000 years to another coronation ceremony, coronation, if you will, of King Jesus. Now, if you or I were writing the script, we would probably have written it much differently, perhaps a little bit more like Queen Elizabeth's coronation, because you you would think that the king of the universe would have had the most extravagant, the most opulent coronation ceremony of all time. You would think that it would have lasted for days, weeks, or even months. You would think that regal heralds would have been sent all over the world to announce the coronation of King Jesus, the King of Kings, to invite the world's inhabitants to a celebration unequaled in history that would make the star of Africa look like the star of Mountain City. 
I'm assuming they have one. But that is not what we find. Because this was not the nature of his coronation, nor was it the nature of his kingdom that he came to bring. Matthew chapter 21, it's already been read, but with all of that by way of introduction, let's compare the coronation, shall we? Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 and following read, when they had approached Jerusalem and come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey, a donkey tied there and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. They weren't even his. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? Do you think they said that about Elizabeth when she came in the golden coach? Crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee, Palm Sunday. Most of us know this Sunday refers to the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem near the end of his ministry, in fact, the last week of his life. As he rode into town that day, according to the gospel of John, the crowds cut palm branches, palm leaves down to spread before him, hence Palm Sunday. But let me ask you. Does what we just read sound like a coronation ceremony to you? It's impressive, isn't it? Compared to the one in 1953. It was a coronation ceremony, but it wasn't very impressive, was it? Where was all of the pomp and circumstance and, and wealth, the golden coach, a donkey borrowed at that? Come on. Where's the regal robe, the royal symbols of sovereignty, the scepter, the crown? Palm branches is the best they could do? Peasant clothes? Give me a break. And where were the Lord's spiritual and the Lord's temporal? That means in time. You know, the religious and political leaders paying homage to Him. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. They were busy opposing Him. At the end of the week, they will crucify Him Queen Elizabeth's reign, should she live till June 2nd, will be 68 years. His lasted less than a week. Not much of a coronation, not from an earthly perspective. Look at it with me. I am actually excited to be looking at what we call the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, although we can't find triumphal entry anywhere in the New Testament. We just kind of 
assign that title to this entry. But as we look at it, guess what we're going to find? We're going to find a message consistent with the humiliation of Jesus, the nature of Jesus' kingdom, the kind of kingdom that He came to bring. And so I would say to you, behold your king, church, because he comes gentle and humble, riding on the colt of a donkey. It's the outline of the text. We see the setting of the story and then the fulfillment of prophecy and finally the coronation of the king, the king of kings. Start with the setting. Some six months before this, Jesus had finished his Galilean ministry and begun to make his six-month journey to Jerusalem. Along the way, I mean, he continued to heal people and preach the message of the kingdom, but something changed. He began to tell his disciples what awaited him once he got to Jerusalem. He told them not once but three times. There, would be, there he would be handed over to the, to the Lord's spiritual the chief priests and the scribes. He would be, suffer many things, mocking, scourging, beating, and then they would put him to death. You, you have to wonder if the disciples began asking the question, Jesus, if that's the case, why go? I mean, these are going great here in Galilee. Large crowds are following you. You got this movement going. Let's go back there. But Jesus was not to be deterred. Luke tells us he set his face resolutely toward Jerusalem. There would be no turning back. See, and his disciples finally arrived. They were coming with throngs of people uh, making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. You may know this. The Jews were required to present themselves at the temple at least once a year. It was started at three times, but now it's just once a, a year. And one of the favorite festivals at which to do that was, of course, Passover. In fact, in some extra-biblical literature, uh, we, we find uh, that during a Passover, about this time, um, there were 260,000 Passover lambs sacrificed. Now, this author was prone to uh, exaggeration, but go with it, 260,000 lambs. One lamb was enough for 10 people. If that number is even close to being right, then it's possible that Jerusalem swelled to over 2 million people when Jesus arrived. It was literally an ocean of people. He's just one among millions. It was Passover, beginning of the week. All of the pilgrims would make their way to Jerusalem. One of the first things that they would do, having they, they brought a lamb with them, but that was, of course, never good enough. They had to select their lamb. They would pick out a lamb, supposedly without spot or blemish, take it to the priest for approval. Then they would keep that lamb safe until Passover, at which time the lamb would be sacrificed in commemoration of their deliverance from Egypt. But on this particular day, at this particular Passover, Jesus was riding into Jerusalem all of the people all over the city were choosing their Passover lamb, and Jesus was presenting himself to God as the Passover lamb, the lamb who would take away the sins of the world. While they were crowning Jesus as their king, even for just a few days, they were actually, they didn't know it, they were actually choosing their Passover lamb. Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem. Jesus instructed two of his disciples, go to Pethage, a small village at the foot of the Mount of Olives, and get a donkey. 
Couldn't we do a chariot? We'd do a horse, a donkey, and a colt. Borrow them. I do want you to notice that it was Jesus who sent these disciples to the village to get these animals. You see, he was aware of the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, which said the Messiah would come, uh, would ride into town on the colt of a donkey. That means something. What it means is this, Jesus chose all of this. He pushed the button. He toppled the domino that would begin the chain of events that we call Passion Week. Meaning this did not catch him by surprise. He chose it. There had been times, you see, when they tried to throw him off a cliff. They, cliff, they picked up stones and stoned him. That wasn't his time. This was his time. He began the events. He chose it. He started it, and it led to his crucifixion. He knew what he was doing. Jesus was not an unwilling participant in this drama of redemption. He willingly laid down his life for the sheep. Brings us to our second point, the fulfillment of prophecy. As I said a moment ago, the events unfolding uh, before us were a fulfillment of Zechariah 9, verse 9. But what we have to understand is the context of Zechariah chapter 9. In, in the first eight verses of the chapter, we see a prophecy about another king, much more kingly, by the way, another conqueror. His name is Alexander. We know him in history as Alexander the Great. Zechariah tells us 150 years before Alexander was born that he would conquer much of the world to include Syria and Phoenicia and Philistia and, and Egypt. We were told he would take such cities as Damascus, Tyre, and Sidon, and so on, which he did. And, and, and now let me tell you something else about Alexander. He was a man's man. I mean, he was a king. I mean, when he conquered a city, his triumphal entrance, <laughs> talk about a triumphal entry, into the city was a sight to behold. We even have recorded for us, by the way, what happened when he rode into Jerusalem in 339 B.C. Here it is, first 2,000 mounted lancers, a lance mount on a horse, lancer, long spear rode through the city, 2,000, their lances pointing to the sky. The thunder of their hooves shook the ground. This is an eyewitness account, by the way. The 2,000 trumpeteers followed, row after row of them, mighty blasts bouncing off the stone walls and streets of the city, echoing back even from the Mount of Olives. The brilliant sound sent a chill down the spine, immense majesty and power. Next came 500 shiny chariots, polished and reflecting the noonday sun. The choking dust, the rumble of their wheels only accentuated their power. Then hundreds of swordsmen with weapons raised marched, followed by 39,000 regular foot soldiers with spears and bows. Their crimson suits and the heavy tramp of their boots vibrated the ground. We call this a triumphal entry. Finally, another large group of trumpets heralded the grand conqueror, the king himself, in rode Alexander the Great, and everybody knew who he was. He rode the great white stallion named Bacephalus, the most famous of all ancient chargers. The white-plumed brass helmet on his head sat like a crown. The bright red cape hung from his shoulders. It was a dazzling display that lasted for hours of, uh, of, mad, uh, of pageantry and majesty and power. This, you see, was an entrance fit for a conquering king. And then there's ours. 
Zechariah tells us when Israel's king, when our king comes marching into Jerusalem, it would not look like Alexander, it would not even look like Elizabeth. Zechariah 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, so what kind of triumphal entry is that? What kind of coronation is that? What kind of king is that? Behold your king, church. Before we answer those questions, let's look at the third point, the coronation of King Jesus as the disciples returned with the animals, they spread coats on them, and Jesus rode the colt into town. There was a crowd following him into Jerusalem. When the news spread that he was coming, a large crowd came out to meet him. The large crowd was likely the ones from Galilee who knew who, knew who Jesus was. As he came, they two spread their coats before him. This was important. It was symbolic, you see, just like Elizabeth's ceremony by Allowing Jesus to ride over their cloaks, they were acknowledging his sovereignty, his right to rule them. They also cut branches from trees. Again, John says palm branches. Then they started saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Save us now, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Save us now. Now, you have to understand, we need deliverance from Rome. This, by the way, is a quote of Psalm 18, one of the Hallel Psalms, praise Psalms, from which we get our word hallelujah, Psalm of deliverance. In fact, Psalm 118 is often called the conqueror's psalm, and they're quoting that to the guy riding a donkey. Probably started with just a few people saying it, but soon it caught on. Everyone was saying it. You have to figure at this point that the disciples were looking at each other thinking, man, this is great. Maybe Jesus got this all wrong. Maybe this isn't going to be suffering and death. Maybe he's going to be crowned king after all. Maybe they even started secretly high-fiving each other, whatever they did back then. I mean, this is going to be better than Galilee. Which brings us back to those questions. I mean, what, is, what in the world is going on here? What is the point of the prophecy, and what is the point of Jesus fulfilling it? What is this? The point is, Jesus is a king, all right, but not like the kings of the earth. This is a coronation, all right, but it is not what we would expect. He came to conquer, but not what we wanted. Golden coach, ostentatious display of wealth and power. D does this look like Elizabeth or Alexander? As he made his way into Jerusalem, he was accompanied by the twelve. You can remember them. Not much of a following, former fishermen, tax collectors, and zealots. There was even a, a thief among them. They were Galileans, so they would have been respected by the inhabitants of the Jews of Jerusalem, Galilee. His entourage was completed by formerly blind, maimed, crippled, leprous, dead people. 
Bartimaeus, you see, would have been there. Jesus had just healed him in Jericho on the way to Jerusalem just a few days before. Zacchaeus would have been there. He was that diminutive tax collector who had just decided to follow Jesus again a few days before. Lazarus would have been there since Jesus had just raised him from the dead. That's important. John 12 tells us that's why many people were coming out to meet Jesus. They wanted to see Lazarus. They'd never seen a dead man walking. It's important to understand what's going on. Yeah, there were thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. Remember the ocean of people there that day, but they were not necessarily impressed with Jesus. They were impressed with his tricks. Get the picture, former prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors, not much of a processional. What kind of king is this? This, I'm suggesting, would not have made worldwide television. Instead of satin and velvet robes, there were only the cloaks of the peasants and branches cut from nearby trees. Instead of the voices of a magnificent choir which attended Elizabeth's coronation, there was only the sound of the common people crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Crown jewels, symbols of sovereignty. He would later be given a crown of thorns, a scepter, a reed with which they would strike him on the head. Coronation? Finally, most importantly, it was obvious to everyone who Alexander was when he rode in. It was obvious who Elizabeth was, kind of hard to miss the golden coach. What about, that, that's what her parade was all about to set the stage for her grand entrance, the queen, the sovereign. When Jesus rode in, he came in on a borrowed donkey. As a result, when the multitudes began shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, they didn't even know, they weren't even sure which one Jesus was. They didn't even know who he was. Verse 10, who is this? You almost get the idea the crowd was caught away in the excitement of the moment. Everyone who had gathered for the Passover, celebrating the Exodus, their deliverance from Egypt, maybe this could be it. They were in a deliverance mood, a Messiah mood. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hey, did you hear that? Cool, maybe the Messiah's riding into town. Which mighty stallion is he on? Here he comes, Hosanna in the highest. Who is it? They didn't even know. Behold your king, church. And when the crowd answered, gave a description, and they didn't even really know who he was. Verse 11 says they only saw him as a prophet, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding me? It wasn't coming from Buckingham Palace. What is going on? Because we understand that the fickle crowds who were now yelling, crown him, would by the end of the week yell, crucify him. Yes, some discussion about which crowd was which, regardless. In a few days, they won't want to crown him. They will want to condemn him. The crowd that was claiming him as their king would by the end of the week say, we have no king but Caesar. The crowd proclaiming Hosanna, which means save us now, would say, you who saved others, why don't you come down from the cross and save yourself? 
Was this really a coronation? It was. Because you see, Jesus came as a king, but not like the ones that the world was used to, not like the one the Jews expected, not like one that you would have expected. The, 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 the Jews expected a military conqueror to throw off Roman oppression, but he came as a different kind of conqueror in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9. Make no mistake about it, this was a fulfillment of prophecy. This, 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 uh, th- think about it for a minute. Why did Jesus have to fulfill this particular prophecy? I mean, it's kind of odd. Why did Jesus come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, the cult of a donkey? Maybe it went like this. I, I, God would just ran wild with my imagination. Maybe uh, one day the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity past were having a brainstorming session as they were planning the events of time. They had already decided that there would be a creation, but that humanity would fall into sin. They had already decided that Jesus would come and die for the sins of the world. But now, how to make sure that everyone understood who Jesus was, that He was the anointed one, that He was the Messiah. How do you do that? Is this the way you would have done it? I know one of them said, let's get some really outlandish, obscure prophecies that only Jesus could fulfill. I know, like the virgin birth, that's a good one. How about this? When he goes into Jerusalem, we'll have him ride on a donkey. No, better than that, let's have him ride on a colt of a donkey. Yeah, that's a good one. Most kings then will be riding in on mighty stallions or chariots. Later, they'll ride in gold coaches or 747s called Air Force One. We'll have him ride in on something no one would ever expect. Yeah, that's a good one. Let's do that. Is that it? No. You understand the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Matthew, we find there is a contrast, a constant, consistent message that came from Jesus every time He spoke, every time He acted. My kingdom is different from the kingdoms of this world. I am not like Alexander. I am not even like Elizabeth. Greatness in my kingdom is not, is, is not to be found in pomp and circumstance and being first. Greatness in my kingdom is to be found in service and humility. Here comes your king, church, gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, full of a beast of burden. Do you think there's a message in the donkey Rather than a beast of conquest, the one bearing him was a beast of humility and peace. It spoke of the nature of the kingdom he would come to offer. He would come in gentle, not crushing, gentle, not cruel. It is a picture of the kingdom that he came to bring. If you're looking for a different kind of king, you're going to miss it. Because he came on a donkey and went straight to the cross. And he continues to communicate to us, his followers, that his kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. No opulence, no regal splendor, no outlandish displays of wealth, regardless of what you see on TV. And strength, just a humble king who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. True. There is coming a day when he will ride in on a white stallion. Then every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And listen, there is a sense in which he did come the first time as a conqueror, but but not conquering Rome as they expected. He came to conquer his old foe, Satan. While Satan would bruise his heel on Good Friday, 
to follow that first Palm Sunday, Jesus would rise from the dead on that first Easter, thus crushing Satan's head. He came to conquer death, you see, your, your death. He came to conquer sin, your sin. He came to conquer sickness and disease. He came not to take life, but to give life. When Jesus came, He came not so much to contend with the tyranny of Rome, but to contend with the tyranny of sin. He came not to free people from slavery to Rome, but from slavery to sin, your sin. Make no mistake about it. This is a coronation ceremony, but not one they or you would have expected. But where would you be without it? The king came to give his life for the kingdom, to lay down his life for his subjects. I close with one final thought. The message of the Gospels is the same. Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. It is a different kind of kingdom, a different kingdom. My question for you this morning is this. Are you a subject of the kingdoms of this world? Are you a subject of the king of kings? Would you rather follow Alexander who committed suicide or Jesus? who gave his life for you.